0: hello and welcome to episode 180 with jennifer dawn carlson if you're listening today is may 2nd or beyond may 2nd is in fact pub day go out there and buy this book information to come i want to tell you a little bit about the chills of will podcast patreon there are three tiers there's official patron three dollars a month you get access to all episodes monthly newsletter with reading recommendations and a shout-out on a future episode. We have the all-access patron. You get access to all episodes. You get the Chills at Will podcast refrigerator magnet. You get monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, a shout-out on a future episode, and bonus episodes, which are either interviews or exploration of themes through two or three texts. This is the first month I'm really excited to have an interview with a writer, and this is Antonia Degnan. And this will be the may bonus episode previous episodes have included explorations of raging against the machine and their lyric jonathan gold the incredible food writer and second person writing the highest level is vip patron that's ten dollars a month monthly amas ask me anything monthly newsletter with reading recommendations access to all episodes the chosen will podcast t-shirt a shout out on a future episode and of course those bonus episodes and don't forget the Chills the Will podcast refrigerator magnet. Please spread the word. Please think about becoming a patron. I am an absolute one-man band. It is just me. I don't have any company. I don't have an editor. I am the editor. I am the researcher. I am the reader, and I am the interviewer. I hope that you feel that this podcast is worth it, and I appreciate your support as always. Very excited for this month, late April as part of the millions, if you were to Google the millions in Rachel Heng, H-E-N-G, who has this incredible book called The Great Reclamation, and she was episode 173, I got my first byline writing about this great book. Coming soon is going to be a byline in Chicago Review of Books for Stephen Burrow, his incredible Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy, Africa, and looking to do more with that. May 6th at the Lit Fest in the Dina in Pasadena, I'll be part of a book love and literary podcast panel with tracy thomas from the stacks what these are some stars brad listy of the other people podcast todd goldberg of literary disco and like 25 incredible books and screenplays as well as mike Sakasegawa. if you've listened to keep the channel open he's an incredible interviewer an incredible incredibly thorough reader that's may 6th in pasadena Check my social media, find all the information there. That's a 12.30 time. Future episodes, I have some incredible guests coming up. In May alone, I have Talia Kaluri and Eli Craner, who just won the Edgar Award, Robert Otone, Tony Ann Johnson. Coming up in, in, in months to come, we've got Kavita Das, Andres Resendez, Ruth Marieveski, Jessica Cuello, Rachel Housel-Hall. Jared Beloff, Sarah Thonko-Matthews, Erica Berry, Adam Vitcavige. It's going to be two podcasters talking. Kara H.L. Chen, Josh Riedel, David Murrah, Ursula Villarreal-Mora, Teresa Runstedler, Nick Fuller-Goggins, Chris Terry and James Spooner together. will be talking their graphic novel. Thank you for listening. Have you subscribed? Have you told someone about the podcast who'd love it? Have you retweeted one of my episode links? Thank you so much for all of your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 180 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure to have Jennifer Don Carlson. Here's a bit about Jennifer. Jennifer Carlson is an assistant professor of sociology and government and public policy at the University of Arizona. Prior to coming to University of Arizona, she was an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. A graduate of Dartmouth College, she received her PhD in sociology in 2013 from University of California, Berkeley. Her research examines American gun culture, policing, and public law enforcement, and conservative politics. She is the author of the book Citizen Protectors, The Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline from 2015, Oxford University Press, as well as articles appearing in Social Problems, British Journal of Criminology, Context, Theoretical Criminology, Law and Contemporary Problems, Gender and Society, Feminist Criminology, and Violence Against Women. Her research has won awards from the American Sociological Association Sex and Gender Section and Race, Gender, and Class Section, as well as from the American Society of Criminology Division on Women and Crime and Division on Critical Criminology. In addition to scholarly writing, her work has been featured in popular venues such as NPR, Christian Science Monitor, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, BBC, and Detroit News. Her latest book, Merchants of the Right, Gun Sellers, and the Crisis of American Democracy is out as of May 2, 2023. Go buy it today. Good afternoon. How are you, Jennifer? Are you? I, I think we're in the same time zone, ish. You're in Arizona, maybe.
1: Yeah, for half the year we're in the same time. Half zone. the year,
0: right? There you yeah, go. Yeah, so
1: I'm I'm on the California side of Arizona right now, so we are in the t- same time zone.
0: There's a California side. Okay. Oh no,
1: just that we flip. So half the year um, we're with California, half the year we're yeah we're with
0: okay through <laughs> gotcha. Mexico
1: and yeah. So so we yeah. I think that says a lot about uh the state of Arizona
0: right now it's like a microcosm yeah Uh, well welcome it's a pleasure to talk to you the the book is going to be the main thrust of our conversation they call it online they call it galley brag I got the ARC right merchants of the right gun sellers and the crisis of American democracy quite an accomplishment and like I said we'll talk about that in just a, a few minutes but um I'd love to know kind of where where it all began as far as reading and writing um i mean there's a lot the book is so great because it's so objective but there's also some beautiful moments of you know connection between like you and your father and you know his influence on you and all that but i just wonder about like was it a a house that valued reading were you in the library all the time were you like somebody took a while to get into writing reading and writing kind of how did that work
1: yeah yeah no absolutely i i really um this is my third book and i really enjoyed writing this book in part because it was the first time that I I brought my my biography in um with regard to my father who is mm-hmm. um or um he's passed away but um you know very very conservative um in in all the <laughs> almost cliched ways yeah, yeah, and um so yeah so he he plays a plays a part in the book um but yeah i mean i, I grew up in a very conservative household um but i definitely was in a household that um, valued education valued mm-hmm. reading um i i think that that was actually something that was um, and, and I write about this in the book that you know in fact uh, my father, who was you know so invested in in Ronald Reagan in you know many many dimensions of of conservative politics, um, in fact his embrace of education was in some ways uh what, made it so that I would inevitably uh you know <laughs> find myself questioning his beliefs and questioning his politics right. um, and then eventually thinking through them um, from a sociological perspective and so absolutely um education reading um, foreign language um, all of these things were actually yeah quite part and parcel of of yeah growing up in my in my house
0: huh I remember hearing fairly I don't know a couple years ago but like you know the idea of like the ev- evangelical Christian, was saying, you know, like, she was saying, you know, when I was growing up, I think around the same age as us, maybe it's like, when I was growing up, you said a bad word and you got your mouth washed out with soap. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of like comparing it to now, you know, I mean, Trump is profane and you know, that kind of stuff. And I think you mentioned maybe Catholicism. I wonder how much maybe Catholicism like informed that, that conservatism from your dad or, or were they kind of, were they separate or were they part and parcel?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Catholicism is so interesting because I grew up, you know, you grow up and you think that your home is the world and you think that these are how these things fit together. And um, yeah, I didn't know that everybody didn't grow up with conservative parents because I was like, oh, they're your parents. They must be conservative. That's (laughs) the way it is. I was like older than I think I should have been when I realized that um, Catholicism was actually not, you know, uh, like as mainstream a religion as Protestantism. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I definitely think that there was, um, yeah, I definitely think there were elements of Catholicism that definitely, um, you know, impacted my dad's style in terms of respecting authority and respecting, um, you know, tradition for the sake of tradition, um, mm. definitely his politics surrounding um reproductive justice were informed by his Catholic faith. So I mean, I definitely think that there was um, elements of that. But yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's interesting, because you you look back and you you wonder, and so as I mentioned, my dad has, has passed away. And so, you know, I can't ask him how all these things fit together. And I think that's the most frustrating thing is not being able to have those conversations. But one of the things that, um, you know, I try to talk about in the book, and I, I use my dad as an example of this is that it's so easy to look at our political debates and imagine maybe even engage our political opponents and really like paint them into very two-dimensional types right um and i think that that's something that um you know i i Growing up, I think it was maybe from a child's perspective, maybe somewhat easy to do that. But as I as I got older and sort of saw my father in, you know, many different dimensions, as well as see him um, move through um, uh, the terminal illness that that killed him, which was ALS, um, you know, it was impossible to not see him as sort of the quintessential conservative, but also to not see how that was actually complicated by mm. many aspects of the way that he lived his life. So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to play this game of like how all the puzzle pieces fit together. But I also think that it's an equally powerful exercise to recognize that we are all more complicated than the puzzle pieces that make us up.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, my condolences on the loss of your father for sure. I- ALS is a horrible disease, right? Oh man. Oh, yeah. Great. Thank you. What were you reading in adolescence in the college? What, you know, what were the the book series or, or writers or type or genres that you were really into?
1: Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So I, I um, went to high school in Indiana and I should give a shout out to the Indiana Academy. So this was okay. this really, um, yeah, this really special place. It was a publicly funded boarding school. So certain states have these, um, they're almost like magnet schools. Um, and they tend to be in states that aren't really renowned for their public education systems, I could say. Um, and so there are these brilliant, um, you know, it's it's these brilliant spaces where they're um, at least when I went to this school, and I it may have changed, there might be like a not more of a nominal fee now. Um, but other than, you know, books and and I, I think there was just like very, very minimal costs. Um, It was basically free to attend. So I would um, basically, I moved there in my senior and junior year of high school. And it was like experiencing college, but as a high school Mm -hmm. student. So super amazing. Um, You know, living on my own, (laughs) thinking Mm -hmm. that I was living on my own, even though there were plenty of rules. And um, that space very much, um, I I feel like so absolutely um, privileged and blessed to be able to have been a part of that environment because that is where, yeah, I read, you know, the classics where I read um, you know, I was reading political theory. I was mm. reading, um, you know, J.D. Salinger. That's huh. you know, the the ultimate for angsty in angsty yes, yes, the 90s. Yes, yes. Um, I, I will admit that um, I picked up some Karl Marx um, mm. and that was actually uh, not because I, I was understanding it as a teenager but mm. um, I think at some point I figured out that like that would really be like a great form of teenage rebellion is to read comics yeah. in front of my father. So it was one of those things where like, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, just, Yay. just an interesting moment in, uh, you know, politics and family dynamics. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that was, that was kind of the, um, yeah, the immersive experience that I had as a, oh, as a, wow.
0: high very yeah. cool. Um, what's the, the title is what, like waiting reading Lolita in Tehran or something it's like mm-hmm. reading marks in front of my dad or something. in Indiana yeah that can be like your mem- part of your memoir or something yeah <laughs> yeah and did you, did you start calling people phonies all the time after reading Salinger
1: uh yeah we had I, a, he, I, I had a couple of best friends that we we yeah we kind of had our own yeah you know more, <laughs> more or less yeah.
0: Classic. yeah that's a classic uh one for teenagers for sure so my correct, was it graduate school or undergrad when you went to Cal Berkeley?
1: I went to UC Berkeley for graduate school. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Is UC Berkeley as they call it, right?
1: Yes, that yeah. Actually, <laughs> when I got accepted, I was so excited and I, you know, called my family because Berkeley was really my my dream school. Like I, yeah. you know, I I I went there as a high schooler and was like, this is amazing, this is where I want to be. Um, and that was at a time where if you were not um, in-state, it was basically impossible to get in. I know that's changed mm. a lot, um, but for undergrad, that was the case then. And so I was like, okay, we got to prepare for <laughs> for grad school for Berkeley. And so that was the dream. And I got in and I called my dad and he, uh, you know, was very clear in correcting my pronunciation that it was in fact uh, UC Berserkly.
0: So maybe <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm mixing this up, but I've heard that it's like more of the... I've heard people say that the city that the city of Berkeley is maybe more liberal, more classically liberal than the college It's maybe more like business and maybe more kind of like button up. The berserkly part is maybe more like the, the city than it is the college. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, I always laughed when I was doing my research. So my 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 first book is based on my dissertation and it's on gun carriers and gun instructors, open mm. carriers, concealed carriers in Metro Detroit. And so I would go back and forth between, um, you know, Michigan and, and California. Mm. And several of the people that I was, you know, that I was studying and, and interviewing, um, you know, they would have something to say about Berkeley. Mm. And it was always funny, because they'd be like the liberal epicenter. And it's like, right. oh, you don't understand, like Berkeley is so left that they don't like liberals either. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> oh, that's funny. So I was
1: like, you don't realize you actually might agree on that. But, right. um, but yeah, I I mean, I do think that there's, you know, Berkeley is a really, the, the university is a huge institution. And so I think depending on where you're sitting, um, yeah. the law school, is it the business school? Is it the sociology department? Um, yeah. It's going to be a little different. Um, yeah. And, Anne, are you talking about, you know, the undergrad mobilization? Um, yeah. You know, there were strikes while I was there and that was graduate students and undergrads. They were, um, you know, definitely um. Yeah. They were, they were definitely engaged politically in a really different way than, you know, faculty in other parts of the university might've been.
0: So yeah. yeah, it
1: definitely is a, is a, is a, it's a giant machine, right? It's yeah. a
0: giant organism. <laughs> yeah. Go, go a little bit South and you'll be at UC Santa Cruz. That's pretty, pretty left as well. Right. Yeah. 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 So citizen protectors you're talking about was 2010. Am I, I mean, you talk about like immersive, like, is that, is that Gonzo journalism or not? Re- would that be? I
1: mean, we we call it ethnography, qualitative okay. methods in sociology. Okay. Um, I mean, I think that's, it's an interesting question to ask, like where the line between excellent journalism and um, and sociology, like where yeah. you draw the line. I mean, sociologists are, you know, we want to be systematic. We want to, you know, collect data. a great deal mm-hmm. of data. We want to apply an analytical lens. Um, we usually want to do things that are um, lengthier than, you know, arcs of arguments that that unfold over the course of books rather than right. you know, a series of of articles but i mean in some ways i think it's interesting some of the you know some of the best gun journalism is deeply sociological so mm. yeah there is a there is an interesting tension between the the two forms
0: yeah i forget who i was talking to you recently but he was a big fan of as a kid Hunter S. thompson and we were saying you know don't don't follow his uh his diet though don't follow his diet yeah. of alcohol and you know rum and gin and all that but maybe the journalism was good so who who were you who were you reading kind of backing up a little bit if if gone if you know journalism sociological writing is is your jam so to speak like who were you inspired by in in those genres what kind of shaped your your type of writing because i mean you could i mean it's definitely sociological i mean there are strains of you know i mean i mean journalism of course but who who did you read that made you say like i want to do that
1: yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think as a graduate student, I was really motivated by ideas and so motivated by, you know, these these theoretical frameworks that were going to help me make sense of the world around me. So, you know, Jonathan Simon's Governing Through Crime is, mm-hmm. is a huge book that really influenced um how I think about um, you know guns and, and the appeal of guns in American society, and so you know in some ways I think as a graduate student I wasn't thinking about writing as a craft. I was thinking about how do I make this, how do I how do I put an analysis together, yes. and I think that the writing part actually um, you know it came after when I I realized like you know you've got to actually have people. <laughs> Like they have to actually be able to not just read it and understand it, but like want to read it, want to turn the page. Um, and so that's been, um, yeah, I mean, actually in some ways, so I do, um, you know, I do academic writing. So like peer reviewed articles that very few people read, I do books. Um, I also do op-ed writing and writing for popular audiences. And so it's very interesting to think about like how you translate something that, you know, sociologists might consider their very sophisticated ideas into, you know, something that, um, you know, someone who's picking up a newspaper or flipping on, you know, a website can can find intelligible and, and <laughs> worth reading. Um, and so I guess I actually feel that in some ways, the training that I took um, with the Women's Op Ed Project. So this is an organization that is aimed at increasing um, representation of um, people who are underrepresented in um, op ed writing. So you know, just breaking down, like this is this is how you do this kind of work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the good graces of op ed editors at newspapers that basically were like, you have an idea, you're a baby grad student. I'm gonna kind of show you how you actually craft this into an op ed and. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've been really lucky with the generosity of, of people who have um, wanted to kind of extend that branch to, to help me sort of, you know, think through how to how to make pros intelligible. So, yeah, it's one of those things that once you get to grad school, you're kind of so focused on your data, you're so focused on your theory that you're not, um, unless there's some like element within your training that, um, you know, when I say that, like, like, literally like a course at your university or your program that is inviting you to think about what it means to actually... To communicate your ideas outside of academia, unfortunately, it's it's kind of a, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a very self-directed process, mm. which I think is problematic because sociologists, you know, just speaking as a sociologist, not even as a gun scholar, you know, we have a whole lot to contribute to making sense of the world around us. But um, sometimes we're our own worst enemies because we're not able to uh, put that in a language that's accessible to, yeah. to people.
0: Do you, maybe not literally thinking of, you, you know, the term Lexile, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Like, uh, like with like, with like George Bush and Trump, like, you know, you read about like the average presidential speech is at like a fourth grade level. I'm I'm not exactly right, but it's really low. Do you think of that? Like maybe not literally thinking of like what Lexile I'm writing for, for like a popular audience, but do you think of, do you think of that? How do you think of that as you write for fellow academics slash for like the the mainstream, you know, public.
1: Yes, the way I think about it not is not so much in terms of like a fourth grade or an eighth grade level or anything like that. Um I think of it as how much work am I asking my reader to do and is it uh, fair to them? You know, thinking about like the amount of overload we have in terms of information and also the absolute gift that you have given me as a result of spending your precious time reading my book. I mean, we, we don't have infinite time on this planet. We have very limited time. And so if someone is willing, you know, now, of course, some of this is assigned coursework. So so (laughs) how much of this is a choice versus coercive (laughs) is another thing. But you know, if someone is um, giving me the gift of their time, I want to make that worthwhile to them, and that's not to say that everything is going to be. You know, some some concepts are just hard. Like sometimes it's it's hard to explain things, and that's okay. But I I think of it more in terms of I've been entrusted with something, and so I want to make good on the reader's trust in me with regard to with regard to my writing, and I don't want to make it unnecessarily complicated. Um, I want to make it interesting. I want to make it worth worth their while.
0: transition into the book. It's not unnecessarily complicated. It's complex. It's not, you know, it's not, I don't know how to say the word. I've never said it out loud. Facile, F-A-C-I-L-E. Yeah. Okay. Right? It's not, it's not Facile like that. Um, you know, because there's, it's a really, there are really important ideas and issues going on in the book. We are recording this about a month before, but just tell me a little bit about like, you know, so it's coming out May 2nd, those who are listening, it's going to be May 2nd or May 3rd. Um, How does it feel to, I know you've had books published before, but how does it feel to have this one out in the world and these these weeks leading up to it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a book that, writing this book was an absolutely different process than any, you know, this is book number three and so fundamentally different than the other two books. Hmm. I think every book is its own, like they're like children, they're they're their own little entities and they come out in their own way. (laughs) <laughs> they, yeah. they develop. Um, but this one was definitely uh, very, very unique in that I had no idea I was going to write it or had any semblance of doing the research for it until basically I decided that it was what was what had to ha- happen. I, like the rest of the world literally, um, was... You know, sitting at home in March 2020 and thinking, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. Um, And this question was not just like, what am I going to do in terms of research? I I was concerned about that because I had on deck a project that absolutely depended on traveling and doing all the things that it became very clear were not going to happen in the near future. Mm But I was also concerned about what was going to happen to my students, to my graduate students, to, um, you know, higher ed. And so I wanted to figure out, you know, how do I, can I develop some, basically some research question out of this present moment, um, you know, to give graduate students opportunities to research and to, um, you know, so that we're not just sitting and and kind of afraid of what's, what's happening next. Um, and so, in some way, and, and that was absolutely, I should say, like from the onset, um, Kat Burgess, Madison Armstrong, Elliot Truslow, Min on um, these are all grad students who helped immensely and assisted in a wide variety of the aspects of making this book possible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and also the National Science Foundation, um, funded, um, uh, provided funding for the, for the project. And so, um, yeah, so basically I'm sitting there and then I start hearing the stories of people rushing to gun stores to purchase guns amid a pandemic, which, you know, is in some ways exactly what you would expect in the United States, but is also, um, yeah, is also not what you would expect when you are thinking about the um, ways to respond to a pandemic, to, to respond to a microscopic virus. So I basically said, okay, this is, you know, what my training has prepared me to do, I'm going to start calling and interviewing gun sellers and, and just talk to them about how they're navigating what's going on, how they're, you know, what what sense they make of these surges, how they're experiencing the surges, are the surges across the board, as big as every, you know, all the headlines are saying, who's buying guns? Is this different? What does this mean for gun politics? What do they think is going to happen? Um, and so, you know, it really was sort of one day, everything was, you know, and this is, again, many of our experiences. Um, one day, it was life as usual. And the next day, okay, I guess I'm doing this new project. And so, yeah, this book was conceived, executed and written um, in pandemic times. And that has also been a very different experience because, you know, scholars and this is another difference between, I think, journalists and scholars, you know, journalists are very concerned with like the timeliness. They want to be, you know, directly engaged with, you know, not just the issue of the year, but the issue of the minute. And Sociologists academics you know we want to be relevant but we also pride ourselves on being able to take a step back and say you know what's the what's the big picture what's the underlying thing that you know maybe if we're so focused on the nitty gritty minute to minute details we're not going to see and so writing this book i had to constantly be like okay how do i push myself into the present but also pull myself away and of course in the context of this just kind of overwhelming, you know, like where everybody's catastrophizing and doom scrolling, that was um, particularly hard to do. And, um, and yeah, and I think, you know, in terms of like feeling, you know, how I feel about this coming out, you know, we're recording this at a moment where Trump has just been indicted and charged. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. And maybe by the time this is released, we we do know much more of how that story is going to unfold. I definitely have felt, you know, month by month that, you know, it's kind of been so, so I finished the manuscript in, um, last summer, in, um, summer of 2022. And so just kind of watching the, the plates of American politics shift has been, Yeah, it's been a little nerve wracking. Like, what if I, you know, what if what if things are going to shift enough that, you know, (laughs) like, like, Mm -hmm. how, how is the book going to speak to those shifts, given that there are definitely going to be things and there have been things that have happened over the past year that um, are very um, major and relevant to to what the book is about. So that's been a little like edge of my seat sort of. (laughs) sort of uncertainty. But you know, that's, that's the the problem with the publishing world, right? Or not the problem Mm. with the publishing world. But that's one of the the things you sign up for when you when you do book publishing is that you know that your book is going to, you know, it's not going to come out in the moment that you are writing Mm. it. And so you have to somehow negotiate that. And yeah, just as like a side note, I mean, we saw that all through 2020 and into 2021, where you know books were making predictions about vaccines and how the mm. pandemic was going to, and it was like they were published and within a week they were already outdated. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was um I, yeah it, it it thankfully that was not the con <laughs> that's not the context in which yeah, I'm publishing yeah, this, yeah. but it's still we're still kind of in that world.
0: Yeah. Oh, I appreciate the, that distinction you make between like the journalists and the sociologists because. It makes a lot of sense. Like it really is, your book really is a time capsule of 2020, which is March 2020. You know, it was three three years and, and one month ago. It wasn't that long ago, but like it really is a a, a time capsule of that very specific time when toilet paper was a thing, right? You know, we've they've had so many different stages of the of the pandemic, and it just fits. It, it just fits so well, and it, it, it does give us that perspective. It's, I know it's, it's hard to make perspective when it's only been three years or two years for a lot of the events. Yeah. but it just, it fits. And like, I haven't really read a lot, um, but I know there's like a lot, like a lot of fiction out there, a decent amount of fiction and stuff that are trying to like, trying to sum up the the early pandemic. And your book definitely succeeds because like you said, it was just a a time that even now we're kind of like, whoa, did that really happen?
1: Yeah. Even when I was writing it. So, you know, 2020 happens 2021, I'm, I'm really focused on writing. And, you know, even at that point, I'm like, you know, in a couple of years when this comes out, are we going to just all want to, forget about it and pretend it never happened. So nobody's mm-hmm. going to want to read the book. Um, I don't think so, but I, I actually don't think we're there yet. Uh, but yeah, it does feel it, it. Sometimes I have to remind myself, like we really did go through that, yeah. like least really sat home for months on end. Yeah, and
0: yeah.
1: yeah it's kind of mind blowing. Um, how distant that feels.
0: I had like a like a spray, you know, you use for like your hair or whatever you put water in it. I would spray, I put some weird mixture. I put some mixture of soap and water and I'd spray the doorknob because I just touched it, because I just touched the grocery. Remember that? Remember that?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people were like pouring bleach on themselves. Yeah. Like nobody, nobody knew. Nobody, nobody knew. Nobody knew. Nobody, and nobody. um and yeah, and I think that's what I really um what was really interesting when I was interviewing gun sellers is that, you know, as the months went on, you know, they there there was more, more coherence. And part of that was you know, the the threats that were out there Mm -hmm. kind of became more familiar, um, you know, in terms of um, just everything that unfolded during 2020. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that initial moment, it really was clear that, I mean, even though very quickly we became very politically divided, there was a lot of, I mean, we just didn't know what to make of it or what side we were on or how to, you know, h- how to make heads or tails of any of it. And that was, I think, you know, in terms of the interviews, I feel like there was this, um, yeah, there were these really powerful moments where, you know, I'd be interviewing, I'd say, you know, tell me about this, tell me about that. And then sort of the interview would be done. And I would think, okay, I'm about to, you know, I did them, did them remotely. Okay. I'm about to, you know, hang up and, you know, then they'd flip the script and say, well, what do you think? What Um, do you think is going to happen? And it wasn't a like, you're a sociologist, tell me what's happening. It was, hey, we're all in this together. And literally anybody's guess is good, is as good as anybody else's. Right. And so that was, that was an interesting moment that very quickly um, evaporated, I think, in terms of the, the deep partisanship that unfolded then into, into 2020.
0: So obviously it's pretty, it's pretty obvious from the title that it, you know, it it focuses on the gun sellers themselves, gun store owners, gun, gun, you know, people that work at the gun stores. You interviewed 50, is that right? Yeah. 53 with most, if not all you mentioned, you'll, you'll say, you know, so-and-so from Arizona, you know, white or biracial, the great, great, great majority are white. And I just wonder about what, you learned or what was reinforced for you about the like the politics of, of race
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: and racism in the like the type of person that would be a gun store owner, I guess.
1: Yeah, this is such a huge question. And it's a question like that's applicable to gun sellers themselves, but also just gun culture Overall, Um, I think there's yeah there's there's so like we could spend we could just do a whole podcast series on this question because it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you know, if we look at who gun owners are, and you know, definitely my sample of gun sellers, they tended to be white conservative men, right? Um, That's kind of the the stereotype, um, and it is like the demographic profile of of gun owners and gun and gun sellers. uh, You know, obviously in my book and. That being said, though, you know, one of the things that was really fascinating about 2020 is that you have all these, quote unquote, like atypical or non-traditional, whatever we want to call it, um, gun owners, gun buyers, you know, and these include first time gun buyers, these include racialized minorities, sexualized minorities, women, um, it includes liberals, even like that's, you know, that that's one of the dynamics. And I think that, you know, and this, this is actually also something that I found in citizen protectors when I did the research with gun carriers and, and gun instructors, you know, I, I, there is the way that race plays out is, is, is complicated. So, you know, there is a very much, um, I would say, and, and that's not to say that there, are, and and there's you know there's race in terms of explicit what people are talking about there's race in terms of you know subconscious structures in the brain implicit bias um so this is really like when i talk to people what people are saying um but you know there is a and and it really came out with with the gun sellers i talked to um this embrace of guns as sort of this great equalizer across mm. different demographic groups so you know you have um and and this is a saying right this is a saying uh, god made and and it changes depending on like like... <laughs> you know, the context, but more or less it's, um, and this is within the, this is like a saying within the gun world. Um, you know, Sam, Samuel Colt, the, you know, Mm. revolver manufacturer, um, or sorry, God created man and woman, but Samuel Colt made them equal. Right. So the gun is this great equalizer. And, um, you know, so, so when I talked to gun sellers about the people coming into their stores, it was, you know, not just that like, oh yeah, all of these people who would never, you know, very like a totally new kind of clientele. And, you know it varied by gun store who they kind of highlighted as like the unusual you know the the unusual gun buyers that were now coming in in droves but you know they they span demographic, demographic um categories And very much there was this sense of like, see, this shows that guns are this powerful tool for freedom, for safety, for security, for protection, for for individual sovereignty. And, you know, I think that definitely some some guns, I mean, some gun sellers were more sort of overt about this than others. But, you know, there was kind of this glee of like, you know, this is a vindication of gun rights. And so, you know, it definitely wasn't the case that um, at least in terms of what gun sellers were telling me that they were you know, trying to, um, yeah, that there was some barrier they were erecting with regard to, you know, who should be having guns, although there's one one exception to that, which I'll get to in a second. Mm. Um, But that being said, you know, the whole sort of politics of guns was very wrapped up in, you know what kinds of freedoms and what kinds of protests are, um, you know, the, the right kind of protests. And so, you know, I have one gun seller that I talked to, who was like, you know, I have tons of people from all demographic categories coming into my store. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, And basically, he's like, yeah, you know, I have a lot of African American gun buyers coming in, and they don't agree with Black Lives Matter, they don't agree with gun, you know, defund the police. Um, you know, they 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 want self-protection, they want to own guns and they don't agree with everything happening out there. And you know, I think that's like an interesting maneuver because it's a way to say like, look, we embrace diversity in the gun store, but, you know, there's certain kinds of politics are not, yeah. you know, are not acceptable, right? Or are not um, the kinds of politics that we want to associate with guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's where you get the racial politics. So I talk about it in terms of a racial politics of respectability, you know, mm-hmm. that that, you know, the respectable politics of of you know individual rights and gun ownership rather than the collective politics of um, you know, mass protests and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, it it comes out in these subtle ways. Um, And I think that it really comes out in terms of how also um, sort of this, and this is something that I try to get at in the book, is how democracy becomes an, a language for exclusion and so how democracy sort of allegiance to, you know, the constitution. And, and I, I know there's like a lot of people have their own ideas on like what democracy is. And, you know, and I define that in the book and how I'm going to use it. So yeah, if you're, if you're watching this and you're like, that's not my definition. I know mm-hmm. I talk about this in the book, mm-hmm. but you know, um, gun seller, you know, there, there were definitely, and I, I, I talk about sort of the libertarian mindset, the, right eclectic mindset and then the illiberal.
0: illiberal. Uh Yeah.
1: And there's definitely, um, you know, there's definitely an articulation of democracy and constitutional rights and sort of what America is all about that is articulated in such a way that it explicitly um, writes out Obama, writes out, you know, Democrats, Mm -hmm. writes out um, the kinds of collective protests and the kinds of collective political expression that are historically and present day associated with demands from marginalized peoples, whether that's racialized, sexualized minorities or what have you. And so, you know, there's definitely these deep ways in which um, race is shaping what's going on. Um, And it's actually happening through how people are talking about democracy, which is kind of one of the big points I'm trying to make in the book is that, you know, it's not I think we came out, especially after January 6th, we we came out, um, and I'm using we, that's always <laughs> like mm-hmm. who's the we. I think many of us came out, you know, sort of with this idea of um, you know, there's a pro-democracy and anti-democracy contingent within US politics, and and that's what the battle is all about. But if you actually look at how both sides, however, you divide those both sides up, both sides really believe and and, and are, are using the language of democracy to sort of make their claims. And so the question really comes down to, you know, who's included? Um, what kinds of political expressions are valued? Um, how do we think about our, our fellow citizens? Do we consider them worthy by virtue of the fact that they are fellow citizens? Or is there sort of a price of the ticket to, you know, entrance into full engagement engagement in American politics? And so, mm. uh, you know, that's that's kind of the like where a lot of the book goes in, in terms of race.
0: We're talking about about race and its connections. Like you said, the, you know, and ideas of democracy, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting. I don't, I don't know how many years it's been. I'm still waiting for the NRA to stand up for like Philando Castile.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For, for well, some I mean, reason
0: they're not, you know, obviously I'm being sarcastic, right? I mean, he was licensed gun owner, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and that's actually not to bring in, um, Another another project. That's That's actually my project and um well my book Policing the Second Amendment. Oh wow public law enforcement and the politics of race. And that book actually it opens with the case of Philando Castile and raises the question of you know how is it that you know you have you have this case and the NRA is silent and not only that but this is an opportunity to actually have a different kind of gun debate and we end up not having it really
0: right no right Um, right right right. yeah yeah
1: and so i think there's also i mean one of the pieces of that also is the relationship between gun rights um the NRA and public law enforcement. And so, mm. you know, it wasn't just that. And it, I mean, I should say it wasn't just because these actually are, are intertwined. It was both, you know, the racial politics of what happened intertwined with the fact that it was um, basically a case that would compel the NRA to, to stand up to and criticize the police. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, on both of those counts, the NRA was, you know, unwilling yeah. to basically do anything other than issue the Vegas of statements. And it created, um, you know, there was, there was backlash within NRA membership basically saying, what are we doing if, if the NRA isn't making a, a statement about this case? Mm-hmm. And
0: so,
1: you know, you have these, um, yeah, you have these moments and you, you kind of can see like a little crack um, and then it gets filled in. Right. right. And that's- yeah, definitely, definitely the case. But yeah, I mean, so there's the politics of race. And I think that, you know, tracing out the politics of race, tracing out the politics of difference, you know, it's it's both kind of seeing that and how it unfolds um, in sort of explicit ways. But then there's also these more subtle ways that, um, you know, difference and sort of the the boundaries of who's in and out of gun culture get negotiated. Yeah. And one of the ways that was, very apparent and even more apparent than when i did my research in 2010 with gun carriers and gun instructors was um how w- was partisanship right and mm-hmm. you know liberals yeah. with guns and so you know there was a lot of fanfare about you know we embrace diversity we embrace you know women with guns sexualized minorities with guns racialized mm-hmm. minorities with guns um but it all stopped when it got to the question of liberals. And that was, um, that was actually very interesting because there was kind of this split, uh, among, um, you know, the gun sellers that identified to the right or on the conservative side, you know, either, you know, this is a moment for liberals to wake up and finally, you know, and, and I, I, um, yeah, there's this kind of conservative, um, uh, slogan awake but not woke and i think that's mm. what they were they were trying to get at um and then there was the sort of like these people are lost causes like there's yeah. no hope for them you know that sort of thing um and so you know definitely and you can see this in pro gun media you can you know read about it in in my book with my my conversations with gun sellers um that was really um you know this this kind of line in the sand in terms of um mm-hmm. uh, you know who was in or out um and i think that's where As more liberals are buying guns, that's where the interesting movement, I think, is going to happen. Are they going to, you know, jump onto the, you know, what has historically, well, historically since the 1970s been an increasingly conservative gun politics and gun culture? Or are we going to see some really um, interesting divergences in terms of, you know, what gun gun culture means in the U.S.?
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. So, I mean, backing up a little bit, the. It, it, what's described in the book is the tw- 2020 they give it the term the great run on guns mm-hmm. you talked about all the new gun owners um 8.4 million uh you wrote new gun owners
1: yeah um, estimates Yeah, estimates. Yeah.
0: right can never be yeah. exact and some somewhere around 23 million guns just in that year alone bought um mm-hmm. this quote was really interesting gun sellers are merchants not just of guns but also of conservative gun culture mm-hmm. and just what you're saying now kind of makes me think of it in a different way i think of it as like I think of it like patronizing in its truest sense, right? Like as in like gun sellers kind of like picking who's cool, you know, who's in the cool club. Right. And so it's like, they're not just merchants. They're like, they're deciders, right? They're deciders of who gets included. It
1: was interesting to hear. So, so one of the paradoxes of American gun law is that the very people who enforce gun laws are, Gun sellers, right? The people who are most invested in in gun rights, mm-hmm. and so it's it's really interesting to hear gun sellers talk about how they like use gun laws and how they talk about gun laws right, right. even enforcing them. So one of the one of the things that often came up was you know gun sellers having to basically deal with clientele who didn't understand gun law because actually gun law is very complicated. It varies from state to state there's a whole lot of, yeah, it's, it's complicated. And so, you know, hearing them describe them having to explain to, you know, new Mm -hmm. gun buyers, like this is what a waiting period is. This is what you have to do. Yes. You can buy a gun on the internet, but I, you can't actually get it shipped to you directly from the internet. And so, you know, they saw this as an opportunity to basically school these, these new gun buyers Mm -hmm. in, you know, what what I, what I was calling at one point in the book, you know, really existing gun control. So like, you know their their whole joke was like isn't gun control great when people are desperate you know these people who are desperate to to get guns who um who've who've never owned guns before and so yeah it was really interesting to see just how um even even the very laws that are passed um you know to to restrict and regulate were Mm. used as um sort of like teachable moments by um by gun sellers
0: yeah. I, I mean, I could, I could almost hear like the smugness or the kind of laugh, you know, the sarcasm, like in, as the d- sellers were describing kind of like, well, you know, you, you thought you could get it right away, but you can't, you got to have this called a waiting period and just, yeah. Again, one of my, it, favorite, one of my <laughs> favorite
1: quotes was a gun seller who was, um, and this was right after a big, uh, scandal involving college admissions had just mm-hmm. happened or just had been publicized and, um, yeah. He said, you know, he was like, yeah, people are like, well, what if I pay you more? What if I do? And he was huh. like, this isn't college admissions, which I think is interesting Ooh. because it's both a we follow the law. We are not playing elitist games. And this is what you voted for. Because yeah. This is this is what gun control looks like. You know, I mean, like, so all those me- all those messages are all packed into that, that, mm-hmm. that simple little snide joke. And so right. yeah.
0: The book is broken down into four chapters with a conclusion. You you kind of talked a lot, you know, just about, you know, armed individualism and this idea that, you know, we need to protect ourselves, freedom in fear, freedom from fear. Uh, you talked about the more diversity. And one thing I thought was very interesting about the book is the the distinction you make between like, So this goes into the second chapter, which is conspiracism. And this idea of like experience versus expertise. And Mm -hmm. I'm so interested in this idea of, you know, like the death of humility, right? Like, you know, people, I mean, just off the top, it's like, okay, what does Anthony Fauci know? Wait, Mm -hmm. he's been doing things since the time of AIDS and the eight, you know, I mean, what does he know? Like he's, you know, got whatever, I'm exaggerating. He's got nine PhDs and this and that, but you really make the point that it's like, and with those individual interviews, individual interviews, it's like okay, but I have the experience," says the guy. Mm-hmm. "I have the experience, and for them, that's equal to or better than expertise."
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, right? it's interesting because it's yeah, it's it's the sense of you know, I know everybody is saying this, or I know, and some of it is not just everybody; it's elite liberal media, right?
0: Exactly, and team with yeah. sorry, team with the elites of, of science as well, right? So yeah, so it's government, yeah
1: media mm-hmm. elites and science, science media elites. elites. Right. So, you know, all elitism in all of its different, <laughs> in its different realms, sure. um, you know, and that stacking up to immediate experience, you know, like I know the statistics, but in my community, it's just not been that way. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, um yeah, it's this very like experience oriented way of, um, of, of, Ascertaining reality, ascertaining um, you know what's true and what's not. Um, I think it's it's really interesting that it's not so it's 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 conspiracism. Like I talk about conspiracism as you know that that you know there's there's elites and this idea that like this is there's some kind of opportunism or something happening behind the scenes. But Mm -hmm. what was interesting about this moment, and I think this characterizes um, you know conservative thinking more broadly. um, And I I also want to say that it's not the case that conservative are the only conspiracists like liberals and leftists, like there's conspiracy all over the place, um, you know, in the US and beyond. So, you know, it's not the case. It's really like, this is how this coheres on the right. Um, But what's interesting about how it coheres on the right is that it's, it's less about, you know, figuring out the answer to this this riddle of of public scandal like it's not about figuring out who was actually behind the assassination of JFK or something mm, like that right. it's it's really just like skepticism for skepticism's sake although it's more com- it's it's more impactful for, than that because it's not simply you know it's not simply saying like i don't know or i have to know this answer it's saying I don't know. And by virtue of recognizing that I don't know that I'm the ultimate skeptic, that I'm not going to believe, right. the experts, I'm not going to just, you know, swallow whatever somebody's trying to shove down my throat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually asserting myself as an individual, you know, and I think mm-hmm. in this context where we have, you know, social media, we have, you know, cable news networks, we have a, a, lot, silos. Of a lot of story. silos, right? Yeah, silos, but lots and lots and lots of um, Mm -hmm. people who are parading as experts. And also, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a very chaotic information landscape. And so you can like in that context, kind of doubling back on like, okay, this is this is how I can. I can assert myself as an individual knower in this context, I think is that's the work that conspiracism is doing more so Mm -hmm. than saying like, you know, I know who's behind nine 11 or I know who's behind his assassination or what have you. So it was definitely, um, yeah, it was really, um, and yeah. And, and part of sort of making that argument is also trying to, trying to shift the conversation about conspiracism away from sort of the extremist uh, sort of,
0: Mm -hmm. Manifestations
1: of it, and yeah, QAnon or you know that kind of thing. To like, no, this is actually like a sense-making tactic that isn't fringe. It's actually really central to how democracy is put together by virtue of the fact that there's always going to be a gap between the experts and the everyday people between folk knowledge and expert knowledge and you know in a hyper you know in a social media world in a hy- hyper um uh you know in, in such a chaotic information environment um that's going to be stressed even more so mm. i think that's where um you know part of the book is to to d- give a snapshot and to really try and understand um by by virtue of having this kind of snapshot of 2020, like this is how this stuff makes sense on the ground. Like we can talk about Trump, we can talk about the Republican Party, but, you know, how does this actually work out on the ground and how does it make sense to, you know, the people who are um, finding it useful and, and and sensible?
0: Yeah, you make it very clear in the book that it's, you know, it's you're really studying the bottom up, not the top down, which is a very interesting, enlightening, you know, distinction you talk about how there's a gap. I mean, you know, that's a very real gap between we call them the elites, the government, whatever. But it's like, so you write about how to fill in that gap. There's the idea of, you know, doing your own research. There's a lot of mm-hmm. comics and stuff like that, you know, about the person who did his own research for COVID. And that's not something I'm going to celebrate, but, you know, got sick or died. I still, mm-hmm. I will never, ever, ever, you you mentioned in the book. I will never understand like the story of like Herm Cain
1: mm-hmm.
0: after he died his Twitter, his Twitter account was still posting about anti-mask. And I'm just like, for what? His life over, you know, going to see Trump talk about, about windmills for anyways. Oh my gosh. But the idea of doing your own research. Right. And so you make the really good point. It's like, okay, if, if so-and-so's doing his own research, well, I know that some, in some way that, you know, BLM black lives matter, you know, they're paid actors and that can really just kind of gloss over, right. They're very real concerns.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like
0: about racism, about systemic racism. I don't know if it was an actual quote, but one of the subheadings was, I'm not an expert, but I'm a thinker. And I feel like that sums up so much.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's actually a quote by, um, that's actually a quote from a book by um, uh, Reese Peck, who writes about Fox News and um, very much uh, finds a very similar way of sort of um well it's a, a, an epistemology if i can use like a sociology sure, <laughs> sure, sure. word you know a, a way of um yeah in engaging in knowledge in knowledge making um practices yeah mm. that was really jargony i know that
0: <laughs> yeah no sorry, right, it's all right. Yeah. The, so you know the third chapter is partisanship which you know we've talked about a, a good amount um it was kind of a not a footnote but it wasn't a huge part but i thought this was so interesting where you make the connection i think i, don't, I hope i'm not misreading it but between like, okay, partisanship, you know, us versus them. And you make the distinction about like how, you know, a lot of Protestant Christianity, not all, is very literal in the Bible mm-hmm. and, and how that, you know, how that can work for for politics too, right? It's, I mean, think yeah. about all, you know, Marjorie Taylor Green and all these folks about what they use for like, you know, the dark side and this battle versus good versus evil. And it just makes so much sense. If the Bible is literal, then, you know, there is a, there are yeah. demonic forces, right?
1: Yeah. Um, so I have to actually, I have to actually tip my cap to um, Francesca Tripodi who actually mm-hmm. is um, someone who, so, so she really gets the the credit for, for a lot of those insights. Um, I cite her a lot in the book yeah. um, because she's really worked through how sort of, um, you know, scripturalism and sort of these, these ways, I mean, we could call them religious practices, but they're not, they can be secularized. And so, yeah you know not just in terms of um I, I, yeah what you were getting at with you know this idea that there's this like demonic threat that is not mm. external it's it's not terrorism it's it's internal it's 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 something that is um you know an evil lurking within um you know that's that's definitely um you know is is echoing religion, even if it's um, a religious religiosity, even if it's, it's a secularized way of of expressing that. Uh, But one of the other things that she talks about, and this goes back to conspiracism is, you know, this relationship to the text and the idea that like, you should be able to read the, and it's Protestantism, right? It's like, you should Mm. be able to read the Bible. You should have a direct, you know, a a direct relationship uh, with God. And, 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 you know, we see that sort of idea about having sort of direct access to not you know to to mm-hmm. expertise to being able to you know do your own research and that sort of thing and so you know in in many ways you can kind of trace out um the impact of not so much like religious beliefs but like religious style religious practices um mm-hmm. in terms of how these things are fit together so it's really it's really, really fascinating, but I can't yeah, take off that because that's, that's actually, um, yeah, that's, that's Francesca's work.
0: I appreciate that. You know, so, yo, know, if, if it is about sorting life into opposing camps, both sides, if we're, if we're talking, if we're making it a binary, so obviously there are a lot of in-betweens, but you know, ideas of like, well, both sides are going to say, well, you know, the liberals, they don't look at real science. Mm-hmm. You don't look at real science, right? They just listen to the, the you know, the Fauci's they don't, you know, yeah. and the, you know, liberals would say the same of conservatives or right-leaning people, right? And yeah. this idea, you you quote the, the survey about 79% of Democrats, this is a couple of years ago, said something that the, the fact that they had cold or very cold feelings towards Republicans mm-hmm. and 83% of Republicans toward Democrats. I want to say the percentage is 17, 18%, something about like the mm-hmm. percentage of liberals who are kind of just like, why don't they just die off?
1: Yeah, yeah. Right,
0: and that—I mean—that's pretty, pretty sobering. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I—I I think it's sobering not just that the—you know—it's—it's it's a we could say like, oh, it's a minority of people thinking that, but like, that's a huge chunk of people who are like, yeah, if half the population just died off, like whatever. Right? Um, that's really disturbing. And it's, I mean, it's not even the finding itself. It's the fact that that was even a sensible question for Mm. a researcher. I mean, it's great research. It's great to know, but like we live in a world where that's a, that is a legitimate research question. How much do we hate each other that we're willing to tolerate the suffering and the pain Mm. of the other side? I mean, that's just really profound. So absolutely. And it is, you know, it's, it's tricky because, you know, especially when you're thinking about this as, you know, sociologists should, which is, you know, my job here is to really make sense of the social world. And so, you know, just kind of pointing all these things out, I'm focusing on conservatives, I'm focusing on gun sellers, Mm -hmm. but I try throughout the book to remind when, when it's true, you know, hey, this is also happening, you know, this is also happening on the left, and that's also a conversation that that we need to be having um and i think that that's where if if i can just move to the the last um empirical chapter of the book yeah that's where i think um you know we get some of the answers to like what do we do um so i i talked to gun sellers the vast majority of them were conservative but i had a handful of gun sellers that identified as progressive liberal democrat uh which was super interesting to talk to them and as you might not be surprised to hear, they had very different views than um other gun sellers. Uh they were very much embrace of armed individualism. They were absolutely, you know, proponents of gun rights. So that wasn't the difference, but they had a much different take on partisanship, on conspiracism. They were open to listening to the experts. Um, they were also, you know, as um proponents of gun rights, they had a lot of criticism of, you know, government action. And I think that's, I mean, most Americans do, I think that's something that is is a very American thing to be critical of government, um, whether you're on the left or the right. And so that was definitely the case for them. But they also could see spaces where government action or collective action was appropriate. They didn't write it off, you know, out of hand. So they were critical, but not um, sort of dogmatic with it. Um, And then I think the other thing that really distinguished them was that they were willing to accept that they that their experience was not sort of the be all end all of reality. And so this particularly to go back to the question of race, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that, you know, because gun sellers were often, you know, understanding their reality so much is intertwined with their direct experiences they were baffled by Black Lives Matter, by the Defund the Police movement. Um, it There was no connection that they were able to make with regard to their, their individual experiences. And, um, you know, that wasn't entirely completely true across the board. There are, um, you know, major critiques in certain, you know, niches of the, the gun rights community with regard to police. But, you know, by and large, it was experienced as, as like, frankly, foreign in terms of their direct experiences. And it's not that the um, the sort of left-leaning or liberal gun sellers were, like, somehow had some different experience, and they were able to connect to that in a different way. It was that they basically said, look, I know I don't understand this. Like, I know that I have not live this life and walked in those shoes. And so who am I, basically, who am I to judge? So it wasn't a like, I agree with this platform. I agree with that platform. It was this sort of humility of, you know, who am I to judge? I don't actually know their reality. And I think that is, and and by the way, I want to make super clear. I don't think it's because these people were liberal or leftist or like, I don't think like liberals have this amazing innate empathy that conservatives constitutively (laughs) lack. I don't think that's what- going on. I think it was that they were liberals in a conservative context. They were mm-hmm. liberals in a conservative environment. And so that forced them to make bridges that people whose politics match the environment that they were in didn't have to do. And so I kind of end the book with saying, you know, look, if we want to think about how to rehabilitate our culture of democracy in the United States, it's actually the people that are, it's not the people on one side versus the other. It's the people who are crossing divides, people who are bridging, maybe it's the liberal gun owner. It's the people who are buying guns for the first time. Those are the people that may actually be in the place to imagine, you know, the kinds of practices and tools we'll need to, to rehabilitate the culture of democracy in the U S
0: Yeah. well, I mean, you know it's such a cliche, but it's like I mean, unfortunately, gun culture is so is just like uh, you know as American as apple pie. But there's so much in this book that's so interesting. You you write about how not necessarily right. I mean, 50s and 60s especially, the NRA. You know this idea of gun culture becoming politicized when it has, hasn't hasn't always been, and not in a in a Mickey Mouse cheesy way. You know, Kumbaya way. Um, that last chapter, you know, really does give a call to action or sort of, you know, remedies, if you will, civic grace, etc. And, you know, the last chapter really talks about how that the bridges, the bridges can be built. And, I, you know, that's the one that's, that's very personal. And, you know, just appreciate you as a writer sharing that, um, those personal stories about you and your father and just as a person sharing your your thoughts with me today and, and with our listeners, like I said, people will be listening to this May second, May third. Congrats. See in the future here a little bit. the The book is out in the world. And I wish I wish I wish I wish it was not so topical and so, you know, right on, but unfortunately it is. So congratulations on the impending book and And thanks again so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Pleasure.